This is Albert Breer from the MMQB.com, and you're listening to Play Like a Jet. From Joe Namath's Super Bowl Guarantee. I got news for you, buddy. We're going to win the game, I guarantee you. To Ryan Fitzpatrick's contract holdout. Ryan Fitzpatrick, he has not shown up at camp. Where are we with Fitz versus the Jets? And everything in between. They froze. It appeared that Marino was going to try and stop the clock instead. He connected for the fourth time with Mark Ingram. And it is juggled and caught by Jumbo this is Play Like a Jet, your weekly look back at some of the best. The New York Jets are the world champions. They have upset the Baltimore Colts and beat them handily here today. And worse. Vince Wilfork is going to throw Brandon Moore back into his quarterback. He's going to fumble the football. Mark Sanchez not expecting it. And it was the backside of Brandon Moore to knock the ball out. Moments in New York Jets history. So get ready to hop in your DeLorean and take a trip back in time. Are you telling me you built a time machine out of a DeLorean? For an in-depth look at the most memorable games, seasons, players, and events in the history of gangrene, it's time to play like a Jet. Play like a Jet? What does that mean? With your hosts, Scott Mason and Big John Sparapolis. And welcome to Play Like a Jet, your weekly look back at the biggest moments in New York Jets history. My name is Scott Mason, alongside my tag team partner, six foot two, two 265 pounds, and quite possibly the next AEW World Heavyweight Champion, Mr. Big John Sparopoulos. What's going on, John? Scotty, once again, the best intro in the business, and uh, that's not a rumor. Uh, that might be a, a spoiler. John, I gotta say... You are a vicious man, and that's why I think you'd be a good fit in AEW. But I also have to say, somebody posted on Twitter the other day, name an athlete that you could see killing a mountain lion with his bare hands because of that whole situation that went on. And my answer, of course, is Big John Sparopoulos. Scotty, um, I actually had myself at number two right behind Brock Lesnar. Another outstanding choice. Either one of you, I could see killing a mountain lion with your bare hands. Not because you're mean or that you would enjoy it, but just because you're capable of doing it. So I would like to see the Mountain Lion Challenge with you someday, John. We'll have to do that and make it into a T-shirt at theloyalist.com slash turn on the Jets. Well, Scotty, my uh, Sundays are free practically until September, so maybe we could get that on the old schedule. Ah, yes, it's true. Although, you never know. Some of those AAF games could be on Sundays, right? And you'd have to be watching Christian Hackenberg. Ah, uh, jeez, that, that is true, Scotty. That is true. Christian Hackenberg, of course, coming back and playing for the AAF this past week. Ooh, what a train wreck he was. Same story as always. You get David Lee this time as the quarterback guru who supposedly fixed his motion, and he's a different quarterback. And then he gets out there, and he's terrible. So let's see how this plays out, but... Hopefully it plays out better for the AAF than it did for the Jets, right, John? Yes, Scotty. I mean, there's only uh, one one way it can play out, and that has to be better than it was with this time with the Jets. Yeah, that's for sure. I'll tell you this much. If Wesley Walker, the all-time great New York Jets wide receiver, had Christian Hackenberg throwing him the ball, he probably wouldn't have accomplished half of what he did. And that's not to say that the quarterbacks that he played with throughout his career were the most amazing quarterbacks of all time, but certainly good enough to at least get him some numbers and get him the ball. And we started talking about his career in depth over the last two weeks. Talked about the two quarterbacks he played with so far, Richard Todd and Matt Robinson. A lot of tension there as Richard Todd and Matt Robinson kind of flip back and forth 
as the starting quarterback of the team to the point where Matt Robinson actually got himself into trouble and got in the doghouse with Coach Walt Michaels and ended up getting himself benched after earning the job after Todd had gotten hurt the year before. So a little bit of seesawing going on there in Wesley's first couple of years. We just heard about how in his third season he had hurt himself and it was the first major injury of his career. Going to be a lot more to talk about, not just with injuries, but the rest of his 13-year career over the next couple of weeks. So, John, what do you say we go grab Wesley and get into part three of our discussion? Ah, uh, jeez. Scotty, I'd love to, but uh, I'm actually on my way to Memphis. Are you on your way to Memphis for the reason I think you're on your way to Memphis? Yes, Scotty, I got a call earlier in the week. Um, as you know, the new uh, football league, the AAF, the Memphis Express was the only team shut out, so they wanted to uh, pick my brain, maybe uh, motivate the team, get a new game plan, and to maybe uh, get some points this week. I had a feeling that that might be why you were heading there, although my backup theory was that you were there to visit our friend Jerry Jarrett. John, what is it exactly that you're going to be doing down there? Scotty, I'm going to take a look at the roster, see if we can make any moves before the uh, next game, try to come up with a new game plan where you actually uh, get some first downs and some scoring opportunities. Well, John, you know I hate when you do this, but who am I to keep you from helping a team score more points? We all need more exciting football on our television. So why don't you go ahead down to Memphis, see if you can help them score some more points, devise a game plan. I'll go talk to Wesley Walker, and we'll meet back here. How's that? Uh, Scotty, as always, uh, sounds like a plan, and talk to you soon. This is the Overtime Podcast Network. Wesley, last week we talked about the 1979 season when you had the first of your many injuries throughout your career. And so we move ahead now to 1980. And going into that season, you had had a really productive first three years despite the injury. The offense was on the upswing. The Jets had just had two 8-8 eight eight seasons, looked like they could be poised to break out. So they make a move in the draft and trade all the way up to number two and grab Johnny Lamb Jones, the speedy wide receiver out of Texas, who is thought to be a potential star at the position. You mentioned him before, so I want to get your take on this. When he got drafted here, were you excited or upset? In other words, did you see this as a slight to you, like they were bringing him in to replace you? Or did you see him as a potential partner out there who could help elevate the team's overall play on offense and take a little bit of the pressure off of you? Maybe you would face some fewer double teams now that they would have to account for somebody like Johnny Lamb Jones. No, I was excited about it, but I think the press, and I think maybe some people in management, they try to light a fire in front of you or something. I never looked at that. I just remember Isaac wanted two blazing fast receivers, and that's what they tried to build us up as. But I never looked at it as, uh, um, you know, him trying to take my position or even competition. And even if you have competition, it makes you both better, you know. So I welcome that. But uh, Lamb and I had a great relationship. I still talk to him to this day, and bless his heart, he's been battling with cancer. And, um, shoot, they had him on his deathbed seven, eight years ago, and he's been fighting and he's been doing well, and uh, we all have some issues. But I tell him all the time, if I would have been his coach, he would have made me famous as a coach because I saw what he had, the ability, and he needed somebody to – because he didn't work at his craft sometimes, but he also lost a lot of confidence, and they'd yank him. And I seen him make catches, and he can run. 
and uh, I'd work out with him. I'd run with him. I'm like, man, this brother can run. And uh, he was funny. He, he liked to, to party a little bit, just like we all did. But you also had to take care of your crap. I mean, he was the type, uh, you see him for a couple weeks, and then you wouldn't see him for six weeks, you know, but you have to work at your crap. I would just have been one of those coaches grabbing him and, hey, you're coming in, we're working on this, I'm going to make you better, you know, and we're going to get you to where you need to be. You know, if he, and if he didn't do it then, then I would have said, hey, then it's a lost cause. But he never had that opportunity. So I was looking forward to having the two guys on the end, uh, you know, blazing and running by everybody, but either one of us couldn't stay healthy. Yup, and unfortunately, 1980 was going to be another year where that would be the case for you as you suffered another injury, and the team did not do well at all in 1980 either. In fact, they're the only team in the league to lose to the Aints. You remember that, Wesley? That was what they called the Saints in 1980 because that's how bad they were. I use that as a teaching tool, uh, and any time the Jets play now, if it's a gimme type game, even this year with with Cleveland, you don't take anybody lightly. And I cried after that game, and I just remember, you know, here they haven't won a game, and I tell people this all the time. There's no gimmies on any given Sunday. I don't care who it is. And as a matter of fact, uh, we had lost this guy, uh, Neil. He's a defensive lineman who went to New Orleans, so he was playing for him. And I remember seeing him after the game, and they had beat us. And that's, that's one of the lessons I learned uh, early on. Uh, and as a, a player, and that's something I can lend to, let's say, youngsters or when you're talking about, you know, taking people lightly or whatever. There is no gimmies in this league. You can lose at any time. And you look at what's happening around the league now, there's a lot of parity. You know, everybody had this, these teams that were front runners right now, but, hey, you start losing here. New England was supposed to not lose anything. KC was undefeated. You just don't know. But that taught me uh, valuable lessons that you cannot take anybody lightly, and you got to prepare. I don't care if it's, you're paying for a, playing against a championship team or a, a team that has not won a game because you can get beat by either one at any time. You were banged up most of that year. A whole bunch of injuries. Strained neck during the preseason. Bruised your cheek against the 49ers. And you even tore the webbing in your fingers during a backyard football accident. Yep, I remember that. Split my finger. As a matter of fact, I had my backup quarterback in college out visiting and just working on some passes. And my neck was really messed up. And when I look back on it now, I look at back on because I took some hits on preseason I had this really bad neck and this neck condition. Who knows how long it's been? And I didn't get my surgery to my neck until 2007 after my career. But there was a lot of damage there, and and that's what guys or, or I think the public don't realize. You know, myself as a player, all the things you did to get ready for a game, and things you did, whether it's taking shots or playing hurt and. I remember I got hit in the eye. I got my webbing split in my fingers, and I'm trying to line up and trying to play this game. And I had a picture of me on the bench with this thing on my eye, and I got my thing on my hand, and just beat up. And uh, this is what you have to deal with as a player. And when you go into games being hurt, you even get hurt even more. And that's one of the things that I regret doing when, uh, a trainer would tell you, well, 50% of Western Morgan is better than 100% of your backup, which is a joke. You can't play this game 100% uh, and be at 50% or 25% and expect to have success. And uh, you just do your discredit to yourself and your body 
and you really can't take a chance on really injuring yourself permanently. And I thank God I lasted as long as I did, but I don't know how that happened with the stuff uh, that we were doing. And they certainly don't have the protections they do now in the training camp and in practices. And we just took a beating on our bodies. And I can't imagine what players did before my time. And this was just a rough year all the way around. You mentioned the injuries, the fact that the team had a losing record, and now Richard Todd led the league in interceptions. He had a really rough year. And going into 1981, Richard Todd was very much maligned by the fan base and the media. A lot of people were questioning him. You had Walt Michaels very much on the hot seat after having a terrible season, and now you're coming into this, coming off two seasons where you missed a lot of time because of injuries. So going into 1981, were you starting to worry about yourself personally, whether or not you were going to be able to stay healthy and have a long career in the NFL? And how concerned were you with Walt Michaels and Richard Todd? Because things had gone poorly for both of them in 1980. And at this point, it looked like they both could be heading for the end of their tenure as members of the New York Jets. Yeah, I never, as a player... You want to be healthy. You want you're you're always positive. I could never worry about what any coach is going to do or what uh, any other player around me is going to do. You know, you hope that they're going to be healthy and you're going to work as a team. I can only worry about what I have to do at my job. And and you train. I just wish they had the training uh, facilities they had back then where we could go because you're just literally doing things on your own and you certainly don't have the training or the camps that they have now where you can go and train and, and basically it's year round now you're just kind of basically doing what you need to do uh i was able to uh like i said when i was in college i ran track that helped me uh with my conditioning but you don't have those things once you're here on your own uh but now they do they have the end season uh programs and but any time I, I came off, uh, even if it's a, whether it's a positive year or an off year, you just have this renewed vision. You're going to be positive. It's just like going in. Hey, hey, everybody's in first place, and you have a chance to win and be successful. My only thing is just I always wanted to try to stay healthy and be the best that I could possibly be. You know, unfortunately, it didn't come off that way. Or where you have an injury riddled season. And that's just part of the business that I've always had to deal with. It's unfortunate. And I and I feel like uh, if I would have stayed healthy, I would have put up more numbers. And, hey, you know, maybe in the Hall of Fame, like some of my guys, hey, I look at the Lynn Swan's numbers. I have better numbers than him. And I yeah. didn't. Uh, he went to the Super Bowl, though, and, and, and was MVP. Uh, but is it a number thing? And I just wish I would have stayed healthier. Then I'd have probably had more accolades than that. But. It's just the way things are. But now, when I look back on my career, maybe I would have done some things differently. But there's also some decisions uh, when you're playing healthy, not practicing healthy, getting hurt because they were trying to push you, not taking care of myself the way it should have been done. And there have been some decisions that I would have made. And especially now, with the way I feel right now, you can't imagine what I go through every day and how I feel like today. I just wanted to go home. If if we didn't have this interview, I would be in bed by now. You know what I mean? Because I, I hurt so bad, and, and, and when it's raining and cold, and uh, I, I can tell you some stories, and it, it, it just is not pleasant. And I've said to people that I wouldn't play this game if I knew I was going to feel like this. But I also, when I've come off a bad year or you've had injuries, 
you just work out. You you, you plan on having the best that you, year you can, and that's all you can do. And your goal is just to help the team and be the best that you can be and hopefully get to the Super Bowl or get to being a Pro Bowl or being the best that you can be, you know. And that's you train. And I, But I think the, the only mindset that I didn't have because we didn't know enough is that you have to put all your emphasis in your training to work as hard as you can because you just don't know when you're going to get there again. And it's not that I thought we would get there again. It's just that, hey, you just don't know it. You don't have the experience. There's a lot of things that I wouldn't do uh, just as a player that, that even the trainers are trying to get you to do or whatever, decision maker, or, or maybe you don't, you don't feel good. You and Hey, I can't practice. You're just going to hurt me. I want to be ready for the game or decision. But some decisions we didn't, uh, uh, we couldn't even make for ourselves. Or so the coaches didn't have, uh, I had one coach that, would hey would listen to you if I tell them hey look I I don't think I'm gonna I'm able to go I'd rather be ready for the game you know we didn't have coaches like that you know I I had one coach who you know I come off of um, holding out and he's gonna run me after practice after <laughs> being hard practice that is the dumbest thing and to me. you shouldn't even be coaching you know you're trying to play games you know you know what it takes. Uh, to try to be helped is hard enough trying to be helped, but why would you run a guy into the ground and beat his body down even more? And that's what we didn't know. And now they have these training facilities where they, they you can only train or, or practice a certain amount, and guys are still getting hurt to the max, you know, right now. This is a violent and brutal game, but it takes a good coach to see everything, and that's why it's so hard to win in this league. It's hard to win in the NFL now. It was hard to win in the NFL back then. But things were going to start to turn around for you guys after a rough 1980. You get to 1981, and this is one of my all-time favorite seasons in Jet history, and it doesn't get talked about enough. But there was some reason for optimism, and the first reason is because your reward for being a terrible team in 1980 was you had a top draft pick, and you used that top draft pick on a young man out of UCLA by the name of Freeman McNeil. So you played a lot of your career with Freeman McNeil, and I wanted to know, just seeing him right off the bat, right away, another California kid and watching him, could you see right away that he was just going to be a special talent? Absolutely, and I, I, I tell him to this day, he was like a Barry Sanders, only he didn't have the speed Barry Sanders had. But this guy had, yeah, I don't know if you saw Barry Sanders, how he could just make these cuts and read the line and just cut back and just had this uncanny knack just to read a hole and change directions. Freeman could do that on a dime, and I used to just marvel at him just, you know, how he did that. And um, But you get to a point where, you know, you get a feel for the game, you learn your linemen, and you make the adjustments, and, you know, you got to know defenses too and how to make these quick adjustments on what a plan and he just had this uncanny uh, ability. And Freeman is not very tall, but I remember it's only in the last couple of years that I've, you know, I'm played with him many years, and, and I swear I never thought, him, and I think of him as a little guy, but when he gets in your car, he's got these big thighs, he's bigger than what you, you think. He's short and stashed, I don't know, he's about maybe 5'9", you know, 5'10", maybe, but he's cocky and he's thick and he's big but when you look at him in uniform you're just out there you don't think of him as this big guy but he, he's got this big 
stocky build, but he had this uncanny neck, would change of direction, and could read holes, and I, I just never could figure out how he did it. I would tell him that all the time. And to this day, I always tell him that. He was like Barry Sanders, uh, like a, the, the, the ability to be able to read, uh, but I know he wasn't as fast as Barry. That's about it. But they remind him of the same type of ability if I had to uh, choose a running style. But um, and the fact that he lived down the street from me and he went to my uh, the, my rival high school and uh, he went to Band and I went to Carson, those were big rival schools, you know, together. He was not the only change that would be made that season. You had a whole new coaching staff. You already talked about Joe Walton, and there was a new defensive coordinator as well, and I'm going to have to ask you about this because I'm a Hofstra alum myself, and a lot of my friends are Hofstra alums, so you know what's coming here. Joe Gardy, who became the defensive coordinator and is a legendary yep. figure at Hofstra, much beloved, the greatest Hofstra Love coach of all time. Everybody loves the guy, so I have to know your thoughts, Joe Gardy. I love Joe Gardy. And matter of fact, he was actually trying to recruit my son for football, but my son was a lacrosse player, and Joe Gardy didn't really <laughs> take parcel to the lacrosse team, and he felt it was competition. And if, uh, if the, as the lacrosse team was drawing more people, he would be pissed off or whatever. I know that was a big thing. But I had a relationship uh, with his family, his wife, and it's disheartening when he passed away, but... Uh, and he's a defensive guy, and so, you know, I'm an offensive guy, so you don't get a chance to spend time, but he was one of the key figures when I got there, and knowing uh, Bobby Jackson, and we hung out, you know, so you talked to the defensive guys, but we had a good relationship, and he was a player's guy, and then obviously when he went to Hofstra, he was right there. It's almost like he's still part of the Jets family, but I always had a great deal of respect for him when we got there. He's one of the nicer guys. Or the nicest guys where you you feel you have the relationship and, and the player is kind of a coach, and I always felt that way. And and there might not be some people that will feel that way about him, or it was like that in the beginning, and then sh things change because I know coaches get the big head. I think when he got to Hofstra, he kind of you know got a little bit big headed where he's running the show, had more control type of thing, and people sort of lose it. But I always had a great deal of respect for. Him. All our coaches, and uh, and there were sometimes at times where you felt like he didn't learn certain things from certain coaches or whatever. But I still had a respect for them, you know. But Gardy, he would have to be if I had to pick certain coaches that hey, a guy that I respected that he would be a player's type of coach. Joe Gardy certainly was one of them. But I, like I said, I knew his family and some of his relatives and his wife's name. They were just real friendly, and you could relate to them, and you appreciate that. And there's nothing wrong with having a, a friendship with one of your coaches or families, and I just wish coaches could do that more often where uh, they feel like you can't get too close to players because you're not going to get the production. But, you know, I still want to respect the coach, and I want to do my part, and the coach should have to worry about you know, recommending me, uh, even though we have a relationship outside of football or whatever. And I don't know why you can't mix the two. This is the Overtime Podcast Network. Guardy, unfortunately, would get off to a rough start, and so would the whole team. With Walt Michaels on the hot seat, you guys start off 0-3 after starting 0-5 in 1980. Ownership comes out and gives Walt Michaels a vote of confidence, but Joe Klecko is not quite as sold on everything. 
He apparently calls out the team for shoddy play, not only in the press, but to you guys. He's the defensive leader, so he's trying to, I guess, rev everybody up. At this point, you started 0-5 the year before, had a bad year. You're 0-3 now. Are you starting to think, man, I hope this season doesn't go as poorly as the season before? Well, you always think that, and uh, and sometimes you question the leadership uh, or even certain players, and because there are certain players that... Uh, that were almost self-appointed or elected by coaches. And uh, a lot of times, and people don't want to even look at this, uh, a lot of people think we were close to the team. And I was really disappointed uh, when I got to the Jets because we had all these clicks. And then we had some some players that were self-appointed or elected by coaches uh, that we felt uh, other players didn't get the same kind of recourse or opportunities of and that we would like to see as some of our leaders. So there was a lot of animosity there. Uh, guys weren't as close as people make it out to be. I know Leon has tried to make like we had this family, but we had a lot of clicks. Uh, there was a lot of prejudice on the team. And at the, my time, I knew they would never even have – I was shocked when they hired Herman Everett because – at my time, when I was going up, they would never hire, uh, uh, you know, certainly a black head coach. It's hard enough to get a, a, a coaching job, but they only had to do that because they had this Rooney or uh, uh, rule that they had to hire at least interview uh, coaches. But there was a point where coaches, uh, I remember uh, saying that uh, Walt Michaels would never have a black linebacker. So we had uh, racial tensions on the team. We had clicks and. And, and me being a black player, uh, and I, I, some of my brothers would be prejudiced or they would be in to have their cliques, and I never liked that. And I thought when we got to a pro level, it wouldn't be like that. And we tried to play like we had this team. And we had so many animosities between players, Gastineau, Greco, Marty Lyons, and they hated each other, you know. It, it, it was crazy, you know. And you're sitting there watching this, and then we had captains that we didn't have any respect for. And, like, even when we went on strike, we had guys that crossed the picket line, and we said we were going to stay out as a team, and there was a lot of dissension. So I look back on that. Were we really close as a team? And we weren't. And we played sometimes. I don't know how we clicked in 82, uh, but we weren't. It just things just happened. And I always felt like if we really had this love for one another and brotherhood and there wasn't this prejudice or whatever, and people come from different backgrounds, I thought we would have had more success, but we didn't have that. Wesley, before we continue through the 1981 season, i got to ask you a little bit more about this because I'd never heard about it before. I didn't realize there were racial tensions that ran that deep back then in 1981. And now you're telling me that even as recently as the Jets hiring Herman Edwards in 2001, that attitude carried over to the point where you were surprised that the Jets would hire a black head coach? Oh, I never thought the Jets would ever hire a black coach because back then they it was hard enough. We would never have a black quarterback. We would see guys come in at linebacker. would be lighting it up, a free agent. They wouldn't even give them a time of day. We'd see these guys that were just average kind of guys, even guys they, they, they drafted highly that just didn't pan out. I mean, you just couldn't even figure it out. 
But my thing when I got, I came from Berkeley where I just didn't worry about this kind of stuff, black, white, this and that. And I remember uh, just dating out of your race and guys would say something to your girls. And we just had that on our team. And uh, I mean, we'd have guys in separate areas of the locker room. And even Bobby Jackson said DBs had their own little corner, guys have hung out. And I remember Joe Walton calling out, uh, I think it was Joe Gleckel and Marty, how can you have a party without inviting everybody, you know, or we had certain things like that, and it was definitely that on the team, and uh, it just was never talked about. I remember Bruce Harper got on the bus. Uh, we had we were in minicamp, and it turned out it was like they had a, 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 a black bus and the white players on one oh bus, black God. players on the other, and Bruce could say, hey, we got to mix this up, and, you know, you just stop this. <laughs> And uh, nobody moved, <laughs> and he laughs about it, you know. But you—that's the story that you have to take up with him. But a lot of guys won't mention that. But guys didn't hang out. Uh, my ex-wife will even tell you, you know, uh, guys using the N-word, and even some of the players that I played with, you know, and and it just wasn't like that. It just—they thought they were better, and uh, and that's just their upbringing or whatever. And I'll never forget this either, Marty Lyons. And this was just a couple of years ago, and uh, uh, you know we're both retired, and we're the, the Jets are going to play. I forgot who they're going to play, but they had this like um, appearance we had to do for the opening of the season, and they had the the drum line down there. And it's a big thing in Hoboken, and they had a big jet cake, and it had these candles with players on it. And Marty notices, it, and I wouldn't even notice it. He said, "Look at all the candles. They have all black players mostly on there." And I was you guys weren't saying that when it was all white, but we were saying that, you know. And it, but it's weird that he noticed that, but it and it changed over. And, and you look at the stuff that's happening now, being divisive, and it's seventy, eighty percent, you know, black, and we still have this divide. But that's been going on for years and years. But like I said, I went to Berkeley. I wasn't used to this stuff. So when I got to a pro level, I'm thinking this is going to change. You know, and it was even worse when I got here, you know, and, and there would be petty jealousies. And I'm not even talking about um, the black and white. My brothers would be jealous of you because of something you had, whether it's a car or a girl you're dating or whatever. And I just was not used to that. We're supposed to be together as a team. So they they had cliques and jealousies, and I just couldn't deal with it. And I so I just did my thing and uh, count my chips, and that was it, you know, <laughs> and do the best I can do. I love everybody, but... Uh, and people had a hard time with me because I just dealt with everybody. And to this day, even growing up in high school, and it's like I hung around with black and white, and people would be prejudiced. And I've always dealt with that all my life, too, still dealing with it. And this whole anthem thing is just shocking that people try to um, make it to, into something that it's not. And it, it's just it's just crazy. And no matter what you do, you can't even convince people what is the right thing, and it's just ignorance, you know, as far as I'm concerned. But you got to stand up for what you believe in, and I believe in that. Wesley, it sounds to me like you're telling me this is a culture that permeated from the top because in addition to the stories you told about the players in the locker room, like I said, what stuck out to me was the fact that you were so surprised that the Jets would hire Herman Edwards, a black head coach, in 2001. So are you saying that everybody all the way up through Leon Hess was not exactly racially progressive in Jets' ownership and management at the time? No, I know they weren't. The Jets have never been like that, and that's why I was shocked. And, and But Leon Hess was gone after that, you know, right. so that's a whole different story. And then take it even deeper than that, 
Now, uh, Herman Edwards is in there, and I had a guy who was like a father to me. He was like a Dan Henning to me in college, Paul Hackett. Both of them guys, when they they came in, I, it's like I hardly knew them, and I, I barely went out of my way, and I figured out. As a matter of fact, Richie Cotide, I remember, he coached me for six years. I called him when he got the head coaching job. He never returned my call. I always thought maybe think I'm looking for a job. Same thing with Herman. Uh, Herman has a, a, a friend of his who was like a brother. He played the opposite corner. We just had a conversation recently like how he doesn't even uh, talk to Herman anymore. Herman is like he doesn't even know him. you know. And Herman has got this whole reputation now. And you look at his commentary, it's a big act and everything. And I it kind of bothers me sometimes because all of a sudden he's got this uh, I guess he's got this big act where I I, he, I got tired of listening to him. I actually called to congratulate him when he got the job because I was impressed with him and the, what he had to say in this con- press conference. And then you're going to uh, you not even talk to me or call me or call me back or whatever. I've I seen him a couple of times, but I never went out of my way after that. It, and I was actually doing the pre- and post-game show, so I'd have to do interviews or whatever, and I barely got a thing from him or Paul Hackett. And Paul Hackett... I used to babysit his kids. He was like a father to me. I go up and I remember my girlfriend in college would stay at his big cottage up in Vermont. I mean, uh, in uh, New Hampshire. And I, it's like I didn't know this guy. And then I remember he got the uh, coordinator position in San Francisco. I remember telling my ex-wife, I don't know who this guy is anymore. And I certainly don't know who or, what happened to Herman. This is the Overtime Podcast Network. <laughs> There's part three of our in-depth discussion on the life and career of number 85, the all-time great New York Jet, Mr. Wesley Walker. Fantastic receiver for this team for 13 years. And I have to say, I was completely caught off guard by what he said there toward the end, talking about the racial tensions in the locker room at the time when he was in his peak in the late 70s and early 80s. I understand that it was a different time, and so obviously there were going to be racial tensions to some extent, but I had no idea it was that bad, and I was really floored by the fact that Wesley thought so poorly of Jets' ownership and management's positions on race that he was stunned that the team hired a black head coach, Herman Edwards, in 2001, although Wesley did seem to say that he thinks that current Jets' ownership and management is not like that at all. Clearly, Woody Johnson has hired two black head coaches And Wesley doesn't necessarily think that that's the kind of issue that it was when he was playing anymore. And this is also not to trample on the grave of Leon Hess. This doesn't necessarily mean anything about him particularly. It's just the culture that was going on at the time. And I will say that for as much as it's unpleasant to talk about, it's definitely worth hearing about because it actually was a portion of Jets history. As much as we don't want to hear about guys throwing the N-word around in the locker room back then or white and black players separating themselves into different cliques just based on race, it's what was going on and it was an authentic part of the history. And I'm glad that Wesley was willing to talk about it because, as they say, those who do not learn from history are doomed to repeat it. So I'm glad that the Jets have progressed on that issue as an organization and it's not something that Wesley thinks poorly of them for anymore but still some explosive revelations there from Wesley on the race issue certainly relevant now considering all that's going on involving the players and protests and all that that have been happening in the NFL to varying degrees over the last few years the only part of that interview that I regret 
is that John, unfortunately, was unable to join me for it because he had to go to Memphis to help their AAF team score some points. They got shut out last week, so they're calling in the big guy as a consultant to try and help them make things better this week. John, how did it go? Uh, Scotty, I don't think it went too great. What happened? Uh, yeah, Scotty, I tried to implement what the uh, Jets' offseason plan was last year, and I, my first plan of action was, hey, if we got any extra cap money, let's get a nice, good special teams kickoff return guy to maybe uh, get some uh, extra yards on the kickoff. Yeah, John, I'm pretty sure that that's not how the rules of the league work. In fact, they're getting rid of kickoffs. Yeah, apparently they don't do kickoffs in this league, so uh, let's say that was uh, strike one. Uh, my second plan of action is, hey, uh, maybe let's sign a young quarterback on the mend and maybe we can flip him for a draft pick a little later on in the season like Teddy Bridgewater. Yeah, John, I'm pretty sure you can't do that in the AAF either. Scotty, that was uh, strike two, but uh, they might have liked my last idea. I said, well, you can just do uh, what, what the Jets did and uh, maybe cut Christian Hackenberg. Hey, listen, it's a tale as old as time. You cut Christian Hackenberg, you get yourself a franchise quarterback, and it gets your team going in the right direction. It's not a bad idea, John. What did they say? Scotty, uh, it was actually funny. There was some uh, T-shirt I was wearing. I think you used to quote the slogan quite a bit. Yeah, John, you certainly weren't the only one who was right about Christian Hackenberg. Quite a few people were, and that's why a lot of people wanted the Jets to either draft Patrick Mahomes or Deshaun Watson in the 2017 draft. Unfortunately, that didn't happen. But thankfully, they wised up in 2018 and took Sam Darnold. So knock on wood, hopefully Sam Darnold continues his progress in his second season in 2019. And I will say, if Wesley had had a chance to play with somebody as talented as Sam Darnold, who knows what could have happened. Don't get me wrong, Ken O'Brien was a heck of a quarterback. He's very underrated by the fan base and historically in terms of the NFL. You're going to hear about his days with Wesley later on in this series, but Sam Darnold is definitely on another level from any quarterback that Wesley Walker ever played with. So I would be curious to have seen how Wesley would have done if he had had the opportunity to play with Darnold, a guy who gets better when the play breaks down and he gets out of the pocket. And with Wesley's speed, he could have broken open for a lot of plays. So it would have been real interesting to watch the two of them together. Unfortunately, we never got that chance, but we will hear plenty more about Wesley's career in part four of our discussion with him next week. Aren't you pumped up for that, Bart Scott? Can't wait! Bart, now that football's over and you're talking basketball, it's a little tough to listen to. I'll do my best for you, but I don't know how long I can hang in there. Before we go, just want to remind you, if you enjoy the show, if you could, go over to iTunes and leave us a five-star review. It doesn't take you much time. It doesn't cost you any money, but it really helps us out a lot. It increases our visibility out in the marketplace of Jets podcasts and allows us to keep doing what we do. So if you could go ahead and do that, we'd really appreciate it. I love seeing positive reviews of all the shows that we're doing here, including our series with Wesley Walker, but also all of the off-season roundtables, our shows with Chris Nimbley of Jets Insider, Daryl Slater of NJ.com. And we're going to be going way in depth on Le'Veon Bell as free agency approaches. We're going to hear from beat reporters. We're going to get a film breakdown from Joe Blewett. Michael Nanny is going to stop in to dissect all the nerdy stats. You are going to know everything you could possibly ever want to know about Le'Veon Bell. So thank you so much for all the positive reviews. And like I said, if you haven't done so yet, if you could go over to iTunes and just give us a five-star review if you enjoy the show, it would mean a great deal to us. 
Also, please go ahead and check out the work of our producer, Alan Schechter, who does a great job on this show. In fact, this Wesley Walker series wouldn't be possible without him. He was the one that reached out to Wesley Walker, helped get him on the show, and then did a lot of the key research for this series. So support Alan, but not just for that, but because of his great work over at EmpireWritesBack.com, covering all things New York sports. Alan is the editor over there, so you know that everything is very thorough, and he leaves no stone unturned. One of my favorite sites, and John, I know it's one of yours. It gives you a slice of home being in the DFW area, right? Scotty, that's right, and uh, as far as our show goes, there would be no Big John without Alan. This is very true. There would be no Play Like a Jet without Alan at this point either. So go ahead and check out his great work over at EmpireWritesBack.com. That's going to do it for us this week. My name is Scott Mason. My tag team partner is Big John Sparopoulos. And John, I believe you know there's only one way that we can end this show. Scotty, a pleasure as always. Um... I think my consulting fee has to go down a tick after this week's uh, adventure with the Memphis Express. Break, break it down. One, two, three, and the hole!